This is the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm Howard Jacobson of PlantYourself.com, the Big Change Program, and Well Start Health. This podcast is part of my mission to help you live a long and luxurious life. All right, today we're talking with a three-peat guest, Dr. Janice Stanger, author of The Perfect Formula Diet, and this time we're talking about everything we know about human longevity, which is, in fact, a lot less than you might think, given the, the recent buzz about the life-extending properties of intermittent fasting or fasting-mimicking diets or ketogenic diets or even the research uh, about the Blue Zones. So two things that I love about talking with Dr. Stanger is her integrity in evaluating the research. And just because a piece of evidence supports, quote, our side, it doesn't mean that Dr. Stanger is going to take it seriously or not subject it to serious scrutiny. The second thing I love about talking with Dr. Stanger is that she brings everything back to first principles. So rather than having us be forced to choose our guru du jour, the person that we're going to hang our hat on until a new, more interesting, attractive guru comes along, Dr. Stanger teaches us to evaluate the evidence from ourselves for ourselves, starting with those first principles, with the real basics. What is protein? What is aging? What causes cellular damage? Those types of questions. And once we understand the basics, we can kind of construct the rest for ourselves. And before we get started, two real quick items of business. The first is I want to thank all the folks who became new patrons in the month of May. And also to, to really appreciate the folks who have gone back into Patreon and increased their, their monthly pledge. Um, the income that I get from this podcast is quite modest. You'll, you'll see if you go to Patreon slash plant yourself that it's right around $500 a month, which is certainly enough to um, keep the equipment up and running and the hosting and pay for a little bit of my time. Um, but if you were listening last week, you noticed that I uh, tested out a new microphone and the consensus was it might be a teeny bit better, but it certainly isn't worth 200 bucks, which means I'm going to return it and then try to figure out what microphone is actually going to give me a significant boost in quality to improve the listening experience for you. And my guess is it'll be a heck of a lot more than 200 bucks. So if you are in the mood to become a patron of this show or to up your patronage, just go to plantyourself.com and on the right sidebar, just click the word Patreon and that will take you to everywhere you need to go. Second thing is this coming Friday, the coach training course starts that I'm running in conjunction with Well Start Health. So it's a little bit late to jump on, but if you are listening to this and really itching to become an effective health coach, an effective food coach, an effective lifestyle coach, and maybe you're coaching already and you've gotten some training from somewhere that just gave you a cursory introduction to the coaching process itself, or you are just a plant-based advocate and you'd like to learn how to help people transition without resistance and without backsliding, um, I can promise you that this will give you tools that will make you wicked effective in helping people make those kind of changes and stick with them. If you're interested, do not delay, but send me an email right away, hj at plantyourself.com, and just put in interested in coach training in the subject line, and then I will get you set up from there. All right, that's all I got for business, and since time is a ticking away and we are all mortal, let's jump into the conversation 
with Dr. Janice Stanger about the science of longevity. So without further ado, Dr. Janice Stanger, welcome back to the Plant Yourself podcast. Delighted to be here. So today we're going to talk about longevity and slowing down aging. Um, I heard you give a talk on this at uh, the Wellness Forum uh, Health Conference in Columbus in in the late fall. And it was great. And I just wanted everybody in the world to be in the room with me listening and taking notes. But the caterer couldn't accommodate. So instead, we're doing it via podcast. Well, that's as good a way as any to do it. I think we'll get lots of people in the know. Great. So uh, for folks who haven't heard you on the podcast before, haven't read your book or don't know about you, why don't you start by just telling us a little bit about who you are so people can can rest easy as they listen to the rest and know that you know your stuff. Sounds good. Well, I'm the author of the book, The Perfect Formula Diet, which is a whole foods plant-based nutrition book. And I have a PhD in human development and aging from University of California, San Francisco, as well as an MBA. So I'm kind of familiar with both the business aspect of things as well as the behavioral and physiological aspects. And I've been doing this research since 1995 when both my daughters decided that they weren't going to eat meat anymore. And they were um, ages 11 and 13. And I was afraid they were literally going to die or at the best just stop growing. (laughs) So I had to start doing this research. And what I found out, of course, was a vegetarian diet was healthier. And I kind of got hooked on doing all this research because what I was finding out as I was reading medical journals and textbooks and nutrition journals and going to conferences and so on was that everything I'd ever learned about nutrition in my entire life was 180 degrees wrong. And I really just wanted to start sharing that information with people. And that's been my passion ever since. Great. And when you discovered that everything you had learned was wrong... Just curious, did did you did you go back and look at where where the errors were? Did you assume it was in the material you were looking at, the way it was being taught, the tools you were given? Because you you used you used the tools of your education to deconstruct the the facts of your education. How, how did that work? You know, that's a very good insight. And the way it worked was by looking at things in a totally different angle. So, for example, people who are going to school um, for a certain objective, let's say they're going to become a medical professional or health professional or, you know, a teacher or something like that, in large part have their education financed, unfortunately, by some of the industries that are are looking at, um, you know, drug solutions or medical device solutions and so on. And I didn't have that kind of vested interest. I was studying out of pure interest and my own passion and my own background because my graduate program included physiology and psychology and sociology and and pretty much any angle of study of humans other than the fine arts, which I would have loved it to include, but it didn't. And so I was looking at things as somebody who wasn't being told, oh, you know, the solution for this is going to be drugs. I was looking at somebody totally independently, my only motivation being to save my daughters from death by, you know, lack of protein. (laughs) And for example, on the protein question, what I found out when I looked at it, and and I kept asking questions, I think that was the main thing that got me to the result is, 
you know, first I wanted to know what is protein and how is protein used on the body. I didn't want to start at the level of how much protein to use because you have to get to a lot more fundamental questions first, like what is protein and why do we need it and what's our role in the body and, you know, where does it come from and how is it digested and all those things before you can work your way up to, okay, how much do we need? That's the last thing in which foods have it. So when I did that with protein, for example, what I found out is that all living things in the world, including plants and animals, are constructed from the same 20 amino acids, and that of those amino acids, uh, approximately eight are considered essential. Some people say nine, but it doesn't really matter. Most of them, our body can make themselves. And that the amino acids that are essential, they're only made by plants and bacteria because they require too much metabolic energy to make for any animals or mammals to make them. So that the original origin of every essential amino acid on our planet is plants or bacteria. Well, we don't really eat bacteria, so that gets us back to plants where we're going to get our amino acids. So to me, that was fascinating when people were saying, oh, you know, protein is this hard to get nutrient and you really should be getting from animals because plant protein is inferior. Like when I really got to the actual facts on protein, it contradicted that. And and everything else I learned about protein contradicted everything I'd ever been told about protein. So, for example, there's a myth that when you eat cartilage, it somehow builds cartilage. That's a prevalent myth these days. Well, nothing could be further from the truth because when you eat anything that has protein in a plant, animal, or whatever, your body takes it apart into the amino acids and then it reconstructs it into what you need. So all this cartilage protein you're eating is taken apart into amino acids, could be reconstructed into any protein in your entire body, of which, by the way, there's about 2 million kinds of proteins in your body. So, so it's like if I, if I want to build a house, someone would say to me, you know, just buy someone else's house and then just turn that into yours, as opposed to buy the lumber and, and frame your own house. Exactly. That's exactly the way it is. And not only that, but when you eat all these amino acids and your body doesn't really need that many because most of the ones you have are recycled um, throughout your lifetime. These amino acids are like building blocks to use your analogy. They're like bricks or pieces of lumber. They can just be used, reused, reused, reused. If it has more than it needs, which it does with most people on any kind of uh, diet in a developed country, it turns the excess into either fat or glucose. So all this protein, expensive protein you're very carefully consuming just gets turned into either fat or glucose anyway for the most part. So that's why, you know, when I started looking at the actual science and I've become more and more a, a follower of doing that in pretty much everything I do these days. For example, in approaching aging, I want to start with the question like, what is aging and what causes aging and, you know, what can we do to reverse aging? and things like that on a very cellular level because if you start with the question without knowing all that, you're going to take a totally wrong turn. You're then going to be dependent on things like stories and anecdotes and, you know, he said, she said, and you're going to have no idea what to do and you're going to probably end up listening to information that is not scientifically accurate. If you don't start from the foundation. That's the basis of my whole approach. It's ask the most fundamental question I can think of to ask and then build up from there. Right. So is there a gap? I'm guessing there's a gap between 
the people you're studying, sort of the you know the biochemists who can tell you about what protein is, where it comes from, or what aging is in the body, like the you know the lab science, the people who win Nobel prizes for for chemistry and physiology and biology, and then the the industry that practices on humans, like why why isn't there a uh, you know why do you have to be a bridge? Why why isn't there a seamless connection between this primary research and how it gets utilized medically? You know that's a good question, and in a perfect world there would be. I think people just you know when they're. And they're smart people and well-intentioned people for the most part, I would think 99 plus percent of them who are studying these things and applying them, it doesn't really occur to them to connect things up. You know, I I do work with physicians on some of these questions as well in some of the teaching I do. And I don't feel like I teach anybody anything they don't know when I'm working with that group. They know 100% of things I'm telling them. They're just looking at it from a completely different angle. They're putting the facts they already know together in a totally different way. It was as if you had a puzzle and the pieces all fit together in one way, kind of. But when you took them apart and put them together, they fit much better when you put them together in another way. And you go, oh, maybe they should have you know, put them together in that way. And that's kind of what I'm trying to uh, change people's direction and thinking so they're willing to do that. And I don't expect anybody to believe me. What I hope to do is just motivate people to go out and be open-minded and do a lot of their own research and look at these facts. I know not everybody's going to sit there and read medical textbooks for fun like I do, but just look at the facts and think them through for yourself. And then I think you're going to come with somewhat different conclusions. And if you just you know, go the way most people go, which I don't blame anybody for doing because it's what everybody does, which is just basically listening to the media, listening to your junior high school teacher who told you about the four food groups and all those kind of things. Because, you know, we start learning these when we're very, very young and we don't really question them. By the time we get to be an adult, they're kind of settled in our minds of things like, you know, we need a special source of protein. Well, nothing could be further from the truth because all foods are abundant in protein. You know, but we don't question it because we've been hearing it all our lives. All right. Well, let's 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 get into the the fundamental questions uh, related to aging and longevity. And I guess you already stated the first one, which is like, what what is aging? And I, I think I know the answer. But as soon as you ask it, I realize, no, I, I really don't. It's, it's like something that happens every year on a certain calendar date. That's, that's, a, that's about as, as, as sophisticated as I've ever really considered the question. So why, why don't you start, take us down the rabbit hole of fundamentals and help us build up a, an intelligent and accurate picture? Okay. Well, first off, I want to let you know and, and let everybody know accurately, there's a lot of disagreement about what I'm going to tell you because, you know, people who are researchers in this field who are PhD biochemists and biologists or um, whatever they're doing, whatever their specialty is, really this is an early study and people don't agree, but there are certain fundamentals that are indicated and where there seems to be consensus. So one thing to realize about aging is that it's the accumulation of damage, the accumulation of damage over time, and not just living things age. So we know that all animals age and eventually 
cease to exist. We know all plants, even redwoods that live for thousands and thousands of years, continue to age and at some point are going to be no longer viable. That's true with non-living things. Think about your car is aging. Your car is not going to last forever. No matter how much you baby, it might get to 300,000 miles, might even get to 500,000 miles. But at some point, it's no longer going to work. And the same with your house and pretty much everything else you have, your appliances and pretty much anything that has any moving parts. And even things like nails are kind of going to age because they're going to get rustier and rustier. And at some point, they're just going to cease to be functional. So aging, as far as we can tell, is the accumulation of damage. Now, the thing about living things is that they can self-repair a lot of this damage. So when you think of your body, it's about 100 trillion cells. There's a little bit of disagreement about whether it's really 100 trillion or maybe it's only 10 trillion, but who cares? It's really not material. I don't want anybody to quibble over that. So you've got this awesome composition of trillions of cells and everyone is like their own little life and everyone is subject to cumulative damage over time. That comes from things like the energy of metabolism. It comes from oxidation, oxygen being all around us in the air and oxygen being a very powerful subject that, that likes to steal electrons and can cause a lot of damage in addition to fueling life. It can also destroy life and you know, causes the nails to rust and all those other things. Uh, errors get made. You know, the DNA replication isn't perfect. The transcriptions of proteins isn't perfect. You know, poisons can come into play and mess up the whole thing. So there's all kinds of things that can happen that lead to damage to all these 100 trillion cells, as well as to sometimes catastrophically many cells at a time. For example, if you're injured, you know, there could be huge masses of cells that are, are kind of injured or damaged at one time. But since we're living things, our body tries to repair that damage. And it has huge numbers of mechanisms for repairing that damage. It has all kinds of specialized cells and processes that do nothing but go around and repair damage. And there's different kind of damage and there's different mechanisms of repairing that damage. And it's all extremely complex, but luckily it's self-regulating, so we don't really have to understand it consciously to any great extent. And to the extent that we can either, one, slow down the damage to our body, or two, up the rate and efficiency of repair of our body when it is damaged, to the extent we can do that, we can slow down aging. And that's the most basic thing we're looking at doing. So when somebody talks to you about slowing aging or stopping aging or reversing aging, the most fundamental thing you need to ask is, will this, number one, prevent further damage to my cells, or number two, speed up repair of my cells once they're damaged? And if you don't get the right answer to those two questions, then, you know, you're on the wrong track. If you get the right answer, then you're on the right track. Gotcha. So I'm not sure if this is, uh, is relevant here. But there's, there seems to be not the, like the difference between um, a, a, an animal or a tree or a plant and a, a car or a toaster or a nail is that anything that, that damages a car or a toaster or a nail or stresses it, if you, if you put something heavy on the toaster and it sort of bends the top and the coils start to come loose, or you, know, you, you bang the nail in the wrong way and, and the... The shaft bends and now it can't straighten out. 
is that any kind of of damage to to non-living systems makes them worse. But it seems like there's certain types of stressors or damage to living systems that they actually require in order to be strong, right? So is is that is that accurate and or useful? Well, moderate amounts of stress that can be repaired, yes, can be useful. But at some point, the body is no longer going to be able to do that repair sufficiently. And that seems to be an unavoidable consequence of aging, that the repair to a cell that, say, a 10-year-old's body could do is going to be faster than what a 90-year-old's body can do, regardless of how well we've taken care of ourselves. So something that is a useful stress at one age that's going to strengthen the damage repair mechanisms and maybe be a change for the better in someone who's younger may not necessarily work the same way in somebody who's older. There's just so many complex factors at play that I think it's very hard to come out with universal truths that are true for everybody at every age under every circumstance. Mm, that's, that's, that's a helpful uh, way to think about it. And I guess if we're start, you know, if we're starting with like the basic um, reductionist fundamentals of the definition. I think it, it might also be useful to go to the highest level and talk about like why we care. Like the there's you know the entire medical profession, as far as I've seen, is predicated on the idea that death is the enemy, and we should just extend days, hours, minutes, seconds of life as much as possible. And I'm not sure that's what you're talking about with your concern about longevity, right? Oh, absolutely. And I'm so glad you brought that up. No, we want to have more good years of life when we slow age. We don't want to have more years that are painful or really where we're not feeling good about ourselves or feeling like, um, you know, we're not vigorous and being productive and able to do things we enjoy and so on. That is not what we're talking about. When you slow aging, the idea is you have more good years. So you have more years where you're vigorous, more years where you're active, more years where you're productive, more years where you can help other people and yourself to pursue whatever goals and values you've chosen for yourself in your life, you know, where you can fulfill your purpose. And actually, that's one of the things that seems to keep people going is that you know, they have that purpose. You know, you always hear these wonderful stories of people that made it through extremely tough times because they were trying to, you know, save their child or or help their community or something like that. You know, we really do need that purpose to keep us going. All right. So, yeah, so, the, I mean, the big picture here feels to me like, I don't know. I'm, I mean, I'm thinking about people who say, like, who tell me when they watch me eat that, you know, oh, well, sure, you, you might live longer, but I wouldn't want to live that way. Like, I want to maximize my my happy years. Right. And I can I keep thinking that those people haven't been to a nursing home lately. <laughs> that is true on that level. That Then the other level, you could kind of talk about them with if they were willing to engage in dialogue is you love the way you eat. At least I assume you do. I love the way I eat. I enjoy every meal. I enjoy every snack. I love eating, yeah, but no, you know, nobody burritos. Believes me. They won't believe Nobody you. believes well, me when I tell them this that I'm eating now tastes as good to me as the junk food that I used to eat 
tasted. Like I, you know, my my taste buds have downregulated. I don't have the feelings of of bloat and whatever. Um, it's just you know, people have this this Im- image of what makes the good life, and it's extremely present biased. Right. With the present being right now instead of three weeks from now, because you and I know it only takes about three weeks for people to really start significantly changing their tastes. Right. Right. You know, and, and, and I've run into that resistance as well. People that just don't believe me and think I feel deprived and that I'm looking at them, you know, eating fried chicken and just longingly wish I could be eating it. Whereas I'm looking at them thinking, you know, I wouldn't eat that if you paid me a million dollars. You know, but they don't. They just don't understand that. But I continue working on the hope that, you know, we can work with them so that we can give the right education so that people come to realize that they do have alternatives, that they don't just have one thing they can do to be happy, that there's multiple things they could do, multiple paths they could choose. And, of course, people are always free to choose the path they want, but they'll, they'll choose the one that maximizes their total happiness, which is going to be the one that also helps slow aging and allows them to be vigorous and productive and all those wonderful things. Right. And I want to offer one, one more perspective on the longevity thing before we get into the, 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 the nitty-gritty is, like, one of the reasons I want, I'm really interested in slowing down aging is so that I can have a good death. Right, so, so that. Well, what I, do you mean by that? I mean, I don't want to have a death that's medically mediated for for months, years, or decades, right? Where I'm, where I'm, I have no interest in palliative care that is entirely designed to take me out of consciousness, so that I'm not connected to what's going on. Like to me, like you know, like we think of dying as the enemy, and but I don't think it is. And I've been around people who've died extremely well and whether it was, you know, at the end of their, of their allotted lives, or even people who are in their sixties, whose lives were cut short by, by cancer, just being in the presence of people who could die consciously has probably been the, the biggest influence on, on my life philosophy, that it's, it's not the end of the world. And to be present for it and to to not need to be, you know, drugged out of my mind or lied to, which which happens a lot. Like, oh, you know, you're, you're doing fine. Like, we can't we can't tell you you can't handle the fact that you're dying because right? that would just that would be terrible. And no one wants to have that conversation. Just that, you know, the, right. the dignity of like if I did everything I could and I'm present for this. Like I'm, I'm kind of looking forward to it, you know. Not, uh, not that I wish it upon myself anytime soon, but like as you know, <laughs> like it sounds weird to say, but dying is like really up there on my bucket list. Yeah, well, I, I know I really feel exactly the way you do, and the way you stated it, I think it's very compelling. It's very lovely. It, it's just very sweet. I, I agree with everything you said, and. Certainly to the extent that we are healthy and we understand how our bodies work. I mean, a lot of this really, Howard, is just understanding how your body works. I mean, it's self-understanding 101. If you really understand how your body works, then you have the freedom to make decisions to support your body. And if you make other decisions, you make them knowingly with your eyes open, knowing that you are going to pay a price for them. And that works right into what 
you said, where you are in control, you're conscious of your body, you're helping it along, you're really working with nature instead of against nature. That's really where a lot of people get in trouble is they're trying to work against nature, thinking it's humans versus nature, and it just doesn't work that way. Great. So help us understand how our bodies work with regard to uh, damage and, and repair and, uh, and slowing that process. Okay. Well, the point is when you work with nature, you can keep your own body flying. It's kind of like an airplane. When you see an airplane flying, like your first thought might be, okay, the airplane's defying gravity, but it's not. It's actually working with all the laws of nature to stay off there, and that's what we want to do. So I'll go through the storyline I did when I presented, when uh, you were listening to me present. And what I started looking at was some of the evidence. And first off, talking about studying longevity and why it's hard to study longevity. First off, it's hard to get accurate information on people's actual age and their lifestyle because in a lot of places, uh, people don't necessarily know how old they are. You know, there's not good records. And if they're really elderly, they might not really know exactly how old they are. There can be honest mistakes. There could be kind of family myths about how old people are. Uh, their lifestyle, you know, we can maybe observe what their lifestyle is now, but we know that chronic disease and aging happens from the moment you're born, actually even the moment you're conceived. So if we don't have accurate records going back decades, it's hard to really study the relationship between age and lifestyle. So, so you don't think there are 350-year-old Tibetans drinking um, tea with yak butter in the Himalayas? Um, I would be very skeptical. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, just, you know, somebody could even in good faith claim to be a certain age. This, they might be in a culture that thinks of time totally different than we think of time. I mean, time is a cultural concept. People in different cultures think of time differently. If you go to, you know, a, another culture that conceptualizes time different from we do, it it can be hard to talk about those things. So no, I would be, I would be skeptical. And then chronic disease does develop over decades. People's lifestyle changes over time. So the idea isn't that we can't study longevity, but that we have to be very aware of the barriers as we're kind of getting into the facts that. We always have to, again, be questioning these facts. And if somebody tells you they're 350 years old, they're not necessarily lying, but just to start out being skeptical and really wanting to see some proof. Right. Well, so is is there, have there been like big mistakes or, or cultural um, confusion based on poor data? Like, you know, we're talking about sort of, you know, ecological population looks like, oh, look at this group of people, you know, they eat yogurt or look at this group of people, they're, they're all fishermen and they are active. Like, do you think that, that there are myths in, in our culture that are based on kind of poor data of, of the type you just described? Oh, absolutely. They're basically based on stories or myths. I mean, myths are nothing really more than stories, but they often concern things that are uh, more cultural or sometimes even scientific. And these stories aren't reliable. Science is based on measurement, verified measurements, where, you know, 10 different people could go in and, and do a measurement, and they might come out with different things, but at least they would have had some sound method of verifying it. Whereas a story, it's just a story. Like, oh, I know a lot of people eat yogurt, and they all 
don't have cancer or, or whatever story you're going to come up with that doesn't really mean anything. I mean, here's a few of the reasons that stories aren't reliable. First off, the story might not even be accurate. The story might not be complete. People have selective memories. They tend to leave things out. They tend to maybe exaggerate or distort things. And sometimes it's perfectly innocent and unconscious. We know it happens. And then you sitting there listening, you have a selective listening. You're going to, to some extent, want to hear what you want to hear. Uh, there's differences between people, let's say, theoretically, and I'm not saying this is true, but theoretically, there might be some people who might benefit from eating yogurt, but people are very different. I mean, some there's genetic differences, there's developmental differences, epigenetic differences. Uh, just because something is healthy for one person, it's not necessarily healthy for another person in a totally different situation. Uh, another thing when we're looking at things like this is if we're not going to fundamentals, we're only looking at surface results. We're not looking under the hood. I mean, you know, you might say, oh, somebody ate yogurt and, you know, they have, uh, I don't know, some good outcome. You know, they have a well-functioning digestive system. You're not looking under the hood. You're not looking at things that are, for example, you know, damage to their arteries or damage to their cells. Uh, you're just looking at one outcome that is, is pretty superficial. Uh, you're not seeing long-term results. You're really only seeing short-term results, like the results today, not what's going to be going on with that person in 10 years. Um, when we rely on stories, as you well know, for every story, there's a counter story. So for every person who was cured by doing X, there was somebody else who was cured by doing the opposite of X, right? Mm -hmm. And then, of course, there's a placebo effect of people think that yogurt is healthy or fish are healthy or whatever, you know, there's definitely going to be a placebo effect to eating them. And, and you and I know the placebo effect is extremely powerful. So there's all different reasons why we don't want to go by these stories. We want to go by verified facts, which kind of took me into the facts I started with at the presentation you saw me do, which was looking at which population is most likely to live to 100. And in this case, we want to look at not which population is most likely to live to 100, but which one has been verified by solid records as being most likely to live to 100 and and to have the highest concentration of what's called centenarians, which are people who live to be 100 or more. And, and in this particular case, there are also people who live to 100 or more in good health, and that's in Okinawa. And the reason this is verified is because the government kept detailed records so that researchers were able to go in and actually verify the age of these people and determine that they actually were over 100 and not just claiming to be over 100 for whatever innocent or whatever reason they were claiming to be over 100. And so I started out looking at people in Okinawa and there was a lot of speculation and there continues to be a lot of speculation as to why these people were so prone to living over 100. We know it's not genetics because when their diet radically changed after World War II, they started getting a, a lot more obese and unhealthy and, and not living nearly so long. So we can pretty much rule out a lot of the genetic factor right there. Although clearly there probably is some genetic factor. There is to almost everything, but it wouldn't be something that could overcome lifestyle. And so we had to look back to what they're eating. And again, we want some verification, some numerical uh, verification of what they're eating and not just go around and talk to five people 
and find out these five people tell us they're eating X, Y, and Z. We, we want something that's solid that tells us what the population was eating at a certain point in time. And we actually have that in Okinawa for 1949 for these people that are the most likely to live to be 100 or more of any population on the planet. And here's what we found. This is from archived government uh, Japanese records because Okinawa is part of Japan. So when you look at where these people were getting their calories, first off in terms of macronutrients, which is generally not a real useful way of looking at things, but I'll give it anyway because it goes so counter to current myths, uh, they're getting 9% of their calories from protein, 6% of their calories from fat, 85% of their calories from carbohydrates. So when you look at their diet, it's kind of like the exact opposite of a ketogenic diet, right? Like if you wanted to construct a non-ketogenic diet, you would put together the Okinawan diet. And yet these are the people on the planet who are most likely to live to be over 100. So getting back to specific foods, and the best way to look at foods is what percent of calories um, they go into the person's overall daily calories. About uh, 19% were from various grains, including a big um, helping of rice. Uh, only about 4% of their calories came from animal foods and 2% from oils. They got about 6% of their calories from legumes, which is mostly soy. Uh, there were a few other miscellaneous things here and there. They got 69% of their daily calories from sweet potatoes. Again, if you're putting together an anti-ketogenic diet, it would be harder to do a better one than the Okinawan diet. Full 69% of their calories from sweet potatoes. Mm-hmm. Did they have Did they have fruit but, in there? Yeah, they they actually didn't eat much fruit. I'm not sure why. I guess it, you know they lived on a fairly isolated island, so I'm guessing there maybe wasn't much fruit there. But they only got about one percent of their calories from fruit. Mm-hmm. But they got about three percent from vegetables. Again, that isn't to say they didn't eat lots of vegetables, but vegetables don't have many calories. So you can eat lots and lots and lots and lots of vegetables, just piles of them, and get hardly any calories. So it's not that surprising that a large part of their calories are not from vegetables. Uh, Some people would count sweet potatoes as vegetables, by the way. So anyway, this is where they were getting their calories from. It's not to say sweet potatoes are superfoods or miracle foods. The point is these people were eating a healthful pattern. They were eating a whole food plant-based diet. And they have they had amazing longevity when Americans came in and, you know, into Okinawa after World War II and they brought fast food with them with all the fat and uh, the meat and, and all this other stuff. Um, you know, lifespan began to decline. People started getting a lot. Uh, more overweight and sick and all those kind of things. So clearly this longevity diet was based on how they were eating. Uh, One thing that people have talked about on Okinawa is was there some caloric restriction because Okinawas are famous for saying, well, you know, you're not supposed to leave the table after you stuffed yourself to the point of feeling like you're going to vomit. You're supposed to leave the table when you still could eat another mouthful or two. So they weren't stuffing themselves. On the other hand, they certainly weren't starving themselves either. So they were eating an adequate amount of food, but they just would leave the table before they were completely stuffed. It wasn't like, you know, Americans at a traditional, you know, barbecue or Thanksgiving dinner or something. Mm -hmm. So 
course, I can tell there wasn't really caloric restriction in the sense of not eating, but they were just simply not not eating too much was pretty much the culture. Right. Well, I didn't I didn't hear a lot of foods in that list that, that were like typical binge foods. Like, you know, my boyfriend broke up with me, so I'm going to just eat a ton of soybeans. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Although, you know what, I'll bet you the people in Okinawa at the time they were on this traditional diet of those foods. Right. Just a guess. Right. And and a lot of them, they grew themselves. I mean, it was just a wonderful lifestyle. It sounds like there's a lot of community and and just all kinds of good things going on there. Right. And and I don't want to make this overly simplistic and say, okay, it was all about the food. I mean, clearly there is a genetic component and the social support component and all those things. But you could have those in a lot of places. Mm-hmm. So what you want to look at is something that makes a difference. Right. And just just to be clear, this is data that was gathered during or just after World War Two, right? Because if you if you if you want to see a a keto or low carb person pop a vein, you tell them about Okinawa, right? Right, exactly. And they'll say, no, they eat lots of pork. And they'll talk about like what they were eating in the 90s. Right, exactly, exactly. Now, this data is from uh, 1949, which is when people were living that long. You know, their life expectancy has gone down, although I've tried to find concrete specifications of it and have not been able to find anything that's really numeric. It's more just, again, unfortunately, more anecdotal accounts of people gone there and like, yeah, the population now is is really seriously overweight and sick. And, you know, they're eating, um, you know, just a lot more fast foods and a lot more white rice instead of their sweet potatoes and things like that. And white rice clearly being a processed food. So, yeah, it, it's it's a data of what they were doing when it happened. They weren't, even though they were on an island, they weren't eating a lot of fish, which is kind of surprising. And they certainly were not eating much pork. I mean, maybe they ate it once a year at a big celebration or something. But, you know, when you look at the percent of their total calories, it was only about 1% of total calories. And that, by the way, is the best way to measure how much food somebody eats is to look at in terms of what their total total daily caloric needs are what percent of those calories, let's say their total calories a day they need, just for illustration, is 2,000 over the course of time, not on any one specific day, but looking over the course of, say, a year, how many of those calories come from one specific food or one specific kind of food. And that's really the best way, in my mind, to, to study diet. Gotcha. Now, Okinawa is one of what have become famous as blue zones. Um, are there other blue zones with equally good data from your perspective, or are they more stories? No, there's there's two. Well, there's one more blue zone with good data I'll talk about briefly, and then there's one more where people really are in a ketogenic diet and where they have a, an exceptionally low life expectancy. So let's mention them too. So... The next one with high average life expectancy is Seventh-day Adventist. Now, Seventh-day Adventist, and, and they've really been studied in California where these longevity studies have been done, so we're kind of limiting to that group. So they don't have as high a concentration of centenarians as uh, the traditional Okinawans did, but they do have the highest verified life expectancy in the world. So what's the difference? 
And centenarians, you're kind of taking out of the population everybody who doesn't live to be 100. So whether an infant dies in its first year or somebody dies when they're in their 20s or somebody dies at 99, they really don't count. When you're looking at centenarians, you only count people over 100. For life expectancy, you count everybody. So it's the average of how long everybody lives, including infants that unfortunately might not have made it out of their first year and young people and so on and so on. Every decade of life gets factored in. So it's the average age that people live to counting pretty much every single person born in that population. And when you look at that measure, the Seventh-day Adventists in California do the best. Now, there's been a lot of studies made on this group because they're convenient to study and they um, tend to be very cooperative in research and want to help scientists out. And we could spend really our entire interview just reviewing published Adventist studies. But one of the early articles, which was published in 2001, that was very well known, has a very provocative title. It's called Ten Years of Life. Is it a Matter of Choice? And that was published in the Archives of Internal Medicine and looked at a lot of the data up to that date with research on over 34,000 people. And what they showed was that the men enjoyed an extra 7.3 years of life and women an extra 4.4 years compared with other Californians. But this life expectancy could be extended to 10 years if the people uh, had lifestyle that included things like high physical activity, They were eating nuts frequently, they were vegetarian, and they were a healthy weight. And they also noted that people in this category tend to have higher quality of life because they took less medication, they used less medical care, and they were less likely to suffer from a number of chronic diseases. So, again, this kind of pointed to more a plant-based diet being a good factor in terms of people having a high average life expectancy. Now, to get into, I think, what is a more instructive case and really speaks to a very popular diet these days is to look at the Inuit, which are, if people aren't familiar with uh, the term Inuit, they've also been called Eskimo. And and this is a group of people that lived, uh, still live uh, near the Arctic, you know, very cold climates. And because they live in very cold climates, there is very, very little plant food to be had. The only real nutrients come from the ocean because there's not much in the way of nutrients on land. The nutrients come from the ocean and, you know, they get eaten by sea creatures, fish and and sea mammals and so on. And and so that's what people had to eat to survive. They had to eat, you know, these sea animals, both the fish and the mammals who were very, very fatty because they needed to be in order to stay warm in this frigid climate. Now, of course, now the whole climate's changing and all kinds of things have happened, but we're we're looking at kind of traditional data. So there's a lot of myths around that say uh, the Inuit have very high life expectancy. There's a lot of myths that say, you know, they don't have heart disease and, you know, therefore it must be good to eat all these, you know, fatty foods. And and really, if there's people in the world who ever survived on fat, it would have been the Inuit. So what happened is there was a a paper published where two doctors claimed the Inuits had healthy arteries, but the problem was that they were using unreliable secondhand evidence. They never actually visited or studied the Inuit. They just went to a place where a lot of Inuit lived, and they talked to one of the doctors there, and they said, you know, hey, what do people around here die of? 
And the doctor told them, and heart disease wasn't very high on the list. Well, when you consider the living conditions there at this point, the Inuit were living in villages far from town. And if somebody had a coronary event, a stroke or a heart attack, and died oftentimes within minutes, there wasn't time to take them on a two-day journey to the village. They just kind of passed away where they were and were buried where they were. So the doctor had no idea these people were even dying what they were dying from. So the Smith got very well established. Well, more recently, there have been a lot more studies. Some have been um, based on bodies that have been found frozen. For example, uh, there was an autopsy report published in 1975 of an Inuit woman whose body was found frozen. She was very well preserved. She'd been frozen for 1,600 years. And when they did the autopsy, they found she had very clogged arteries. And there's other similar autopsy reports that have been published. And then when people have actually started studying longevity, there was actually a good article published in 2014 in the Canadian Journal of Cardiology. And the the title of this article is, is somewhat telling. It's called Fishing for the Origins of the Eskimos and Heart Disease Story, Facts or Wishful Thinking. And here's the conclusion of that article from the people who actually got the facts and actually studied them. They said, and this is a quote from the article, they said the totality of reviewed evidence leads us to the conclusion that Eskimos have a prevalence of coronary artery disease similar to non-Eskimo populations. They have excessive mortality due to cerebrovascular strokes. Their overall mortality is twice as high as of non-Eskimo populations, and their life expectancy is approximately 10 years shorter than the Danish population. So in other words, you've got these people who are on a ketogenic diet who have lots of heart disease, stroke, mortality twice as high as, as other people who are on what we, not an ideal diet, but what we think of as a more normal diet, and life expectancy, they're losing approximately 10 years of life. And then we've got the people in Okinawa who are living, you know, almost entirely with on whole plant foods, which get their calories from carbohydrates. And getting their calories from carbohydrates, by the way, is incidental. The important fact is they're whole plant foods. And, and they have the highest concentration of centenarians in the world. So hopefully that can be a telling fact for people who want to, you know, drive a little bit of a wedge into all this stunning popularity of um, ketogenic diets these days, which, by the way, hopefully the popularity will go as quickly as it came. Well, there's there's going to be a survivor bias. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> well, that's true. That is true. Right? Like everyone can eat the way they want and like, you know, in 50 years, we'll know, you know. <laughs> Which, I mean, what, what I like about, you know, this this particular argument is there's so many arguments in sort of science and philosophy where no, where nobody has skin in the game. Like if someone says, I believe in the keto thing and I'm going to eat, you know, I'm going to do the research and I'm going to eat that way. Well, at least they're 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 betting. They're not they're not just like some writer or doctor telling everybody else what to do, but they're not going to do it. Exactly. Uh, we'll we'll figure we'll find out eventually. Right. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, the whole thing is so complex, and really, when you're looking at longevity and slow aging, diet is a huge component of it. But I would be the last one to say it's all diet. Certainly, physical activity 
plays a part. Uh, stress control plays a part. Getting adequate sleep plays a part. You know, having social support and, and kind of feeling good and confident in your own skin plays a part. I mean, there, there's a lot of right. things that come into play that interweave, but yeah. food really is the foundation because that's pretty much what your body's made out of. Right, and, and the fact that, you know, the, the major tool we have statistically for teasing those apart is basically a regression analysis that kind of, you know, which is sort of the way the Blue Zones uh, did it. I don't know how scientifically, but if you look at, you know, all these different characteristics, food, uh, lifestyle, exercise, social support, faith, um, you know, air quality, whatever. And then you try to figure out which are the most important contributors that kind of ignores the possibility that it's really synergistic, that one thing without, without exactly. the other. And it is synergistic. Right. It is definitely synergistic. For example, you know, if let's say air quality is, is a big thing and it's not just synergistic statistically, it's synergistic actually. So if you want to say air quality is a major factor in longevity, which it almost certainly is, uh, you know, your air quality is going to be way worse if you live in a house where you're cooking animal foods because when you cook them, you're generating all these polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons and so on that are, you know, fine air particles and so on that are very toxic, you know, because indoor air quality tends to actually, in most places, be worse than outdoor yeah, air quality. I never thought of that. I studied uh, indoor asthma when I was in grad school, and I've been stiff, obviously, you know, immersed in nutrition. I never made the connection between cooking animal products and indoor air quality. Mine. Yeah, it's a huge connection. How, how would you compare that to, and, um, like, secondhand smoke from cigarettes, if you have kids in the house? Like, <laughs> Is there is 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 one you know clearly worse than the other, or do we not know? I doubt if we know. I certainly we know for cigarettes. We know for cigarettes that secondhand smoke is extremely dangerous, and that thirdhand smoke is. So, what's thirdhand smoke? Thirdhand smoke is what gets in the environment and, for example, clings to the wall. So, if you walk in a house where somebody's been smoking, and let's say they're not there anymore, so there's no secondhand smoke, the windows have all been opened, and everything you're still going to smell the cigarettes because those chemicals are clinging to the walls and they come off over a period of years and years and years and all that time they're hurting people's health. And you have to go, if you want to get a, a room cleaned, you have to go to really elaborate measures to get rid of all those chemicals. And, you know, it's going to be the same with cooking meat. You know, some of those particles are going to cling to the wall and they're going to leave a smell. I mean, if I walk in a house where somebody's been cooking bacon, I can smell it immediately. Uh, you know, even if they haven't cooked it in days, the smell will still linger. The same if they've been frying fish or whatever. It, the, some of those smells just linger and linger and linger. And when the smell lingers, it basically means the chemicals are lingering. Now, whether, you know, the cigarette smoke is more dangerous than the bacon fumes, I really couldn't tell you. But let's just say neither one is good. Right. Well, I, that came to mind because of the, the backlash against what the health. Right. Where they they uh, they claim that, you know, uh, an egg a day is equal to five cigarettes. Um, and and because of the difference between relative and absolute risk, it appeared to be alarmist. Right. So, so. Well, I doubt if it's alarmist. You know, it, it's sometimes it's hard to quantify things like that just because, as you said, things are synergistic. But I wouldn't doubt the fundamental thinking of it. Right. 
All right, so uh, so we've got your, the first category, which is the uh, these large scale population studies that are actually well done and quantified and reliable. Where else do we look for evidence around how to how to live long lives? Well, I kind of circle back to the fundamental science, and maybe we should have started there, but it kind of gets people's attentions more to start with stories because people can relate to that better. So there's a lot of theories about how the cellular damage occurs, and I want to go through three of the most prominent ones that have been very well accepted. And again, there's a lot of sources of damage, and these aren't mutually exclusive, but these are three of the most prominent theories of aging. So one has to do with oxidative stress. Now, the oxidative stress theory of aging says that, you know, this process oxidative stress plays a big role in driving the aging process, which is to say it's a big driver of damage to cells that then needs to be repaired or it accumulates. So I don't want to get really deep into chemistry, but let me talk real briefly about oxidative stress and we need to understand what a free radical is. So a free radical, and probably many people have heard this term before, but basically it's a particle or a substance that has one or more electrons that are off on their own. So just to really drastically oversimplify the chemistry, you can think of electrons as liking to buddy up. They like to exist in pairs. They always want to be with the buddy. So if they're not in a pair, they really don't like that, and they want to be in a pair, so they're going to go around and try to um, get another electron so that they can have their body, but when they do that, they have to take it from another particle, which then loses an electron that it didn't want to lose. And you can get cumulative damage that goes on and on as these free radicals form, and they damage uh, cells. So even a cell, a cell that's um, that, uh, an atom that's had an electron or a, a molecule that's had an electron ripped from it and then gets another one back, is that leading to damage, or is it just sort of like a square dance? No, it leads to damage. The whole thing leads to damage because you've got these electrically charged particles that are kind of bouncing around your body, and they can end up creating different substances that leads to a lot of damage within the body. And, the, you know, um, fats can be damaged, proteins can be damaged, DNA can be damaged, pretty much any part of the cell can be damaged, but the most dangerous damage is usually to fat when the fats are damaged. And meanwhile, you have to think your body has repair mechanisms. So all the time this damage is happening, your body's running in with its, you know, fire engines and police cars and whatnot, and it's trying to fix the damage. But obviously the best thing is not to have the damage in the first place because some of it is not going to be repaired. And then we're going to start getting this cumulative damage. So what, what, is, it, what is it about fat damage that's more dangerous than anything else? Well, it tends to persist longer and form more dangerous byproducts that can can cause more damage because, as I said, these changes kind of cascade through the body and and you get different byproducts that are formed and the fat byproducts are the most dangerous. Yeah, so, for, for example? Well, for example, I, I have to really start getting into the chemistry, so it's I mean, what, what are they, what, better Have we heard of any of these? Like... Yeah, yeah. If you just look at a textbook on biochemistry or nutrition, you know, they'll really get into that. And probably the best thing to do is if you go on PubMed.com, you can search for a term called lipid peroxidation, lipids being basically fats, a 
although they also include cholesterol and, and uh, compounds like that. And uh, peroxidation is basically just for some reason in fats is called peroxidation instead of oxidation. I have no idea why. But if you search for a lipid peroxidation, you will get probably literally hundreds of thousands, if not millions of articles that come up. And uh, you can really learn a lot about lipid peroxidation. I've spent a lot of time doing this. Um, you know, it, it's very fascinating because one thing you find out when you do this is that where lipids tend to become oxidized is where they have a double bond. And where they have a double bond is when you're looking at polyunsaturated fats because the polyunsaturated fats are polyunsaturated because they're missing some hydrogens. So where they're missing hydrogens, they have what's called a double bond where the carbons are binding to each other instead of to a hydrogen. And those bonds are very weak and they tend to be easily attacked by oxygen and broken. And that's when you get rancidity. You've probably heard of rancid fats or fats that have been... Mm damaged oxygen, oxidized by oxygen. And what most people don't realize is if you eat a fat and it's not already rancid, and, and usually people will give it a little sniff and if they can't smell something's rancid, they'll assume it's safe and they'll eat it. If they smell it's rancid, then I think most people probably wouldn't eat it because it smells pretty disgusting. But if you eat this fat, then your body has a lot of oxygen in it, right? Because you run on oxygen. So it's inside your body. It's nice and toasty warm in your body. It's what, about 98.6 degrees and, you know, whatever your normal body temperature is. The point is it's nice and toasty warm and you've got all this oxygen and both the high temperature and the oxygen drive uh, this peroxidation process. So it can actually become rancid after you eat it. And that's where you start getting in. Also, if you heat the oil, uh, for example, you're deep frying something and then you, every time you reuse the oil, say you're deep frying batches of donuts or french fries or whatever you're deep frying, every time you reuse it, you're accumulating more and more dangerous products. So, you know, th there's a lot to be said for fat biochemistry. Mm. And, and that's another reason uh, to avoid eating it. Right. So just for kicks, I typed in um, lipid peroxidation into PubMed just now and uh, <laughs> Well, this is one of the reasons I don't go to PubMed a lot. The fourth one, the title is Melatonin has a protective effect against lipid peroxidation in the bone tissue of diabetic rats subjected to acute swimming exercise. Yeah, those aren't the articles that we no. want. <laughs> I don't even, I, it didn't even occur to me that there's, there's researchers out there forcing diabetic rats to swim. I guess that's beyond the scope of what we're talking about. Well, our tax dollars are paying for it. When they could be going to actually pay for useful research that could help people live longer, healthier lives, but instead they're going to pay for torturing diabetic rats. Right. All right. So, but anyway, oxidative yeah, how, many, how many pages did you get, Howard? When you look at the top, it'll tell you how many pages there are, I think. Uh, well, it says uh, 3,312 pages. So okay. six, six, so you know there's a lot 66, of articles looks out like 66,000 plus articles on the lipid peroxidation. Yeah. So I'm not at all surprised. And, you know, you can also read about it in various textbooks and things like that. That'll I'll kind of boil it down a little bit. And so you don't have to spend your time reading articles about diabetic rats. But 
Um, yeah, it's it's a very important topic. It's an extremely important topic in both nutrition and medicine that I think that has been barely scratched. And I do intend to be, you know, writing a lot more about it mm. as I uh, get into putting this information together. But I have written about the dangers of extracted oils. I've written and talked about that quite a bit. And the extracted oils, for example, now we're talking about oils in a jar, such as, you know, whether it's olive oil or sunflower oil or canola oil or, you know, whatever kind of oil, it doesn't really matter. Or it could be oil in a tub, which is, you know, some kind of plant-based margarine or some other plant-based um, fat that is solid in a tub but it's taken out of its, you know, whole food matrix. Or, or it could be some kind of animal oil like, you know, lard or tallow or something like that. You know, all those things are not protected. Now, of course, in the animal, they're not really protected anyway because there's not huge numbers of antioxidants in animal foods. But when you look at the plant foods, let's say you're looking at corn oil. Well, if you're looking at the whole corn kernel, there's a lot of natural antioxidants in corn because the corn has to protect itself against this lipid peroxidation as much as we do. And it can't have all the oil in its little corn body, its corn cells become um, rancid, clearly, or it's it's not going to live. So it has all these natural antioxidants. So when you take the oil out of the corn, you're leaving most of those antioxidants behind and it gets rancid much more quickly. That's why, you know, it's perfectly fine to eat corn, you know, eating corn on the cob or frozen corn or whatever eating, it doesn't matter. But when you take corn oil, it's a totally different Ball game. Gotcha. All right. So, is is there more about oxidative stress that we should understand, or is it is it is it mostly about avoiding animal fats and processed vegetable fats? Well, that's a lot of it. Uh, supplements really aren't going to have a balanced um, antioxidation or kind of uh, antioxidant activity. You want to eat whole plant foods because whole plant foods provide all manner of powerful antioxidants, most of which we probably don't even know what they are, but they help protect you against free radicals. And then animal foods, for example, that have heme iron, which is the majority of animal foods, heme iron in animal foods is a pro-oxidant, because when you think of iron, think of how easily it gets rusty. It'll get rusty just lying out in the air if it doesn't have a protective coating on it. Um, heme iron is a kind of iron that's prevalent in animal foods. And the problem with heme iron is your body really can't regulate very well the amount it absorbs. Your body doesn't want too much iron because your body is very smart. Remember, we're the product of 4 billion years of evolution. So it's given us our bodies a little bit of time to learn something. And they don't want too much iron because iron is a pro-oxidant. And so there's elaborate mechanisms within your body to actively regulate the amount of iron you absorb. And your body purposely does not absorb most of the iron you eat because it doesn't want it, because it knows it's just going to sit there and get oxidized and and not be needed. But when it comes to heme iron, it really can't regulate the absorption very well because of the um, form the iron's in. And so you tend to absorb too much of it, and then it just kind of lies there and gets oxidized. So it's thought that one of the reasons red meat, for example, is such a a bad effect on health is because of the excess of heme iron. Mm -hmm. So from there, 
I guess we can go on to the next feeling of aging, theory of aging, which is one of my favorites, and it's inflammation. And in fact, this is such a, a well-accepted theory that it's often called inflammaging. So I-N-F-L-A-M-M and then dash aging. So inflammaging instead of inflammation. Very clever, huh? But I didn't make that up, so, so don't get mad at me for it. <laughs> so inflammation is essential for survival. Acute inflammation is protective. That's our body's response to something like microbes that might be attacking us or some kind of mechanical injury or burn or radiation or severe heat or cold or uh, chemical poisons or really almost anything that can harm us, our body reacts with. Acute inflammation, number one, to fight the source of the injury and number two, to help us heal afterward and then it resolves and goes away. So that's not a problem. That's actually absolutely essential for life. We couldn't you know, live through a day without that process going on. The the harmful part of inflammation is called chronic inflammation, which is inflammation that just goes on and on and on and never resolves and never gets past the healing stage and goes away. And inflammation at this point, there's been decades of research on this, is thought to underlie many of the chronic diseases that are associated with aging, and that includes things like cardiovascular disease, arthritis, diabetes, Alzheimer's, as well as, um, you know, conditions that might also strike younger people, such as headaches or sinusitis. It's thought to underlie many cancers. Uh, Scientists don't totally understand the process of chronic inflammation, but believe it may be driven by repeated threats to the body that don't need the body time to heal between each. So if you thought, for example, let's say you got a scrape, you know, you went out and you fell down and you scraped your arm and it was a really bad scrape. Well, you know there's going to be inflammation in that scrape and it's going to hurt really badly for a while. But, you know, after a few days or week or whatever it takes, it's going to heal and go away and it won't hurt anymore. And after a while, it'll heal over and you'll never even remember you had the scrape. It'll be gone. But let's say you took some sandpaper and every single day, instead of letting this gray peel, you dusted it with sandpaper. Well, what would happen? Your scrape would never heal, become a a source of chronic inflammation. And that's what's thought to happen. For example, if you think of inflammation from cigarettes, from people smoking, you know, if, if somebody just smoked one cigarette in their life, it's unlikely that one cigarette would have much of a bad effect because you know, it would trigger inflammation and all kinds of damage in the body, but eventually it would be healed and, and the inflammation would go away. But when people are smoking multiple times a day or even just once a day, there's no time for it ever to heal. That's why people who smoke even just one or two cigarettes a day are measurably damaged by it because this inflammation never has time to heal. It takes longer than a day. And so it's like rubbing the sandpaper on your scrape. So... Inflammation, this chronic inflammation can damage cells. And as I said, there's all kinds of sources of inflammation. Uh, Whole plant foods may counter this pro-inflammatory state. There's been research showing that uh, oxidative stress, we talked about, damages your body. And then this is very related to the inflammation because when the free radicals damage your body, the damage creates inflammation because inflammation follows body damage. So all these are very related to each other. Hmm. And, and the main sources of inflammation in our lifestyles are the food, right? 
Oh, yeah. Food, food is a big one. So uh, there's also yeah. pollutants in the atmosphere around us. But again, that gets tied together, as we already talked about. Um, pollutants in your kitchen are going to be closely tied to the food you're cooking. Uh, pollutants in your body are going to be closely tied to what you eat because uh, a high percentage of, for example, the persistent organic pollutants, which are the worst kind in your body, come from animal foods because these poisons bioaccumulate up the food chain. So the higher up the food chain you get, the more uh, persistent organic pollutants are going to have, and that's true even if you're eating organic animal foods. So, you know, everything is kind of tied together. You know, you could say the pollutants are one source of inflammation and food's another, but in fact they're all tied together. And, and there's many other sources you know, and, and things we don't do can cause inflammation and damage to our body. For example, if you just sit around 24 hours a day and never move, you know, you spend all your time either in bed or a chair, that lack of physical activity is going to create damage to your body. You know, and if you never eat fruits or vegetables, you're just living on French fries and soda and hot dogs, you know, that absence of whole plant foods is going to uh, help keep your body from repairing itself properly. So it can be things you're not doing as well as things that you are doing. They're both important. What's what's the link? <clears throat> excuse me. What's the link between lack of physical activity and inflammation? Like, what's what is what is the trigger if if, if it's an absence? Well, nobody is hundred percent positive at this point. There's been huge numbers of study on the dangers of being sedentary and this has been documented that people that are very sedentary are more prone not just to heart disease but to certain cancers and diabetes and so on. In fact the link with diabetes is the most well known. Uh, you know, it's probably just that, you know, when you're sitting still the blood is tending to pool and it can't really properly circulate and it's going to tend to coagulate. And so, you know, if your blood isn't circulating properly, your cells aren't going to be getting adequate oxygen and nourishment. So there's all kinds of mechanisms we can think of. I'm not sure that any have been proven at this point. However, there's extremely good research. Again, if you go to PubMed and input something like sedentary or sedentary and diabetes or sedentary and cardiovascular disease or whatever, you're going to uh, get a lot of hits. And I haven't seen any studies that show that, oh, it's, there's a good outcome to being sedentary. Just watch TV 20 hours a day and, you know, you'll live to be 100. Right. Well, if I, if I do that search, I'm going to create a filter for, for rats. So <laughs> That's a good idea because, yeah, a lot of them have been done on rats. But the thing about being sedentary, it's pretty easy to study that in people. Mm. They've even gone so far as to hook people in offices up with various instruments that actually measure when they're moving versus when they're not so that they're not just getting, you know, people's records of, you know, how often they got up out of their chair at the office to go to the bathroom or go get a donut or whatever. They're actually measuring it with an instrument that's telling them when the person's moving or not. So there's some pretty good data on that. Gotcha. So we're uh, we're coming close to when I have to go to another meeting, but we have to get to the third... um, theory of aging. Yeah, and we can go through this pretty fast, and that's telomeres. So probably a lot of people have heard of telomeres. Uh, They're um, kind of linked in some ways often described as the plastic caps at the end of a shoelace. 
that protect the shoelace. So telomeres are at the end of your chromosomes, and they protect your chromosomes. And these telomeres shorten when your cells divide. So over time, they tend to get shorter as you get older. And at some point, they get so short, the telomeres, that is, get so short that the cells physically can't divide and renew themselves. And that's been suggested by some scientists as a kind of biological clock to determine the lifespan of cells and individuals. Because as I said, when these telomeres get too short, your cells can no longer renew themselves and they eventually die. And there was actually an extremely good study done. I actually loved this study. It was published in The Lancet in 2003. And it was on the association between telomere length and survival in people age 60 and older. And to condense the study, they divided people into different age groups. And where they got telomere length from, these people were blood donors. So they they got their telomere length from their blood DNA. And then they followed these people over the course of 15 years. And each of them isolated into various age groups. Because obviously somebody who's 95 isn't as likely to survive for 15 years as somebody who's 60, regardless of anything. So they, they corrected for all that. And what they found is those with shorter telomeres over the 15 years were half as likely to survive. They had three times the risk of death from heart disease and eight and a half times the risk of death from infectious disease. It's a very clever study methodology. And so you might be saying, well, how do telomeres relate to diet? Well, unfortunately, there hasn't been a huge amount of study done. But the study that I like best was a study of, by Dr. Dean Ornish, where he was actually studying uh, feeding a whole food plant-based diet to men who had slow-growing prostate cancer. So most of you probably heard of the study and know that the men who followed the Ornish diets had their prostate cancer growth um, slowed to a crawl, basically, compared to people who were just eating what would be considered a normal diet. But they also measured telomere length. And what they showed is that telomeres can actually lengthen on this whole food plant-based diet. So the men who were on this diet actually had their telomeres lengthen. And so that is pretty astounding because, you know, most people think telomere length can only go one way, which is down. But now we see that on a whole food plant diet, it can actually get longer. And that had never been shown before that anything could make them longer, right? Yeah, not consistently like that. You know, there have been spot studies here and there, but this is looking at an entire dietary pattern of people who were followed over a period of years. So it's a very consistent phenomenon that was very related to diet, as, as well as, you know, to be fair to Dr. Ornish's program, it has other elements. He also includes physical activity and stress reduction, and he makes sure that people in his program have good social support so it's a multi-pronged study, but that's just what we were talking about before, that aging isn't a simple phenomenon. Aging is a very complex phenomenon, and it has a lot of determinants, but being on a whole food plant-based diet is a major part of it. Mm. So we have, we have these three theories, and we know there's a whole bunch of different lifestyle factors. And I think this, this is the question I, I came at you with when we were... Uh, together in Columbus, is like, how extreme do you have to be? So, you know, when, when I first started studying this, and, and I'm, I was immersed in all the debates between, you know, paleo and Atkins and keto and plant-based, um, the, the thing that I clung to was like the blue zone stuff. Like, that just seemed so 
compelling. Like, oh, you know, if you want to know how to eat, just look at healthy people and just do what they're doing. Like, that's your best bet. And, and none of the Blue Zone people were vegan. You know, we're, we're 100%. My question to you was, do you think it's possible that 100% is worse than 97%? Um, which I guess, you know, sort of the, the larger issue is how do we do we know anything about the, the, the linear relationship between dietary habits and longevity at the extremes? Or, or is the research really just studied sort of average people who then get a slightly better than average? You know, it, it hasn't looked at the extremes because there's really not good studies of people on a 100% whole food plant-based diet because those studies really just haven't been done. I mean, even the Ornish studies, which are probably the best we have in the Ornish diet includes some small amounts of non-fat animal foods, small percent of calories, but they're allowed on the diet. Uh, when you look at the China study, um, you know, those people were eating small amounts of animal foods. And even in Okinawa, they were getting about 4% of their calories from animal foods. So that's a very hard question to ask. You know, when Dr. Campbell looked at the China study data, he found there was no lower limit below which fewer animal foods didn't have a good effect on people's health. So he could draw them and say, okay, if you got to 3%, if you went to 2%, it didn't help you more. He couldn't say that based on the data because he didn't find a lower limit. But I don't think we have the information to talk about it. You know, what we can say is every time you're eating something that damages your body, you're causing damage to your body. It's just like smoking a cigarette. Can we say that smoking one cigarette a day is okay? You know, we know four or five cigarettes a day uh, really noticeably, measurably shortens lifespan and leads to disease. But would one cigarette a day do it? How about one cigarette a week? You know, we just, mm -hmm. there's certain things where we don't really have information. Well, it, it, sound, it sounds so, like from the way you've laid it out that it's pro probably the, small amounts on a regular basis are much more dangerous than, you know, having 10 cigarettes one, you know, one day a year, right? Or eating, eating the, the treat meal and then allowing your body to recover, to put down the sandpaper and allowing those, those stress um, and, you know, pro-inflammatory um, processes to, to take over and bring profound healing as opposed to a diet that's sort of 85% perfect, but 15% imperfect every day. Yes, exactly. I would agree with you on that. Again, if we were spending our money on really good research instead of diabetic rats being given melatonin, we would have a lot better information on that. And I could give you a much more definitive answer, but unfortunately we're not spending our research dollars wisely as a population. And, and so it's hard to answer those kind of questions, even though they're very fundamental. But I do agree with you 100% that if you're going to damage your body, try to do it like, you know, once or twice a year and not regularly. Because when you do it regularly, you don't allow yourself the space to heal. So if you're going to smoke, you're right, smoke all your cigarettes for the year on one day, you'll probably get sick afterward, and then... Mm -hmm your body will heal, and that's a lot better than smoking every single day. Right, cause I, Not that I'm encouraging anybody to smoke. The ideal is obviously never to smoke at all. But the point is, if you're going to do it, you know, allow your body time to heal, and it doesn't heal in a day, 
you know, how long does it take to heal? Depends partly on your age and other elements of your lifestyle. Some people might heal from a certain stressor in a week. Some people might take a month. You know, really, I don't think there's a rule of thumb. Right. Well, yeah, you know, yesterday, so for example, I ran a marathon. And we know that people who finish a marathon have higher levels of C reactive protein, of markers of inflammation, of, 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 of stress. And... You know, if I were running that, if I were doing that all the time, it probably would not be a good idea. Um, but you know, to, to have to find a stressor like that in my life and then allow myself to completely recover from it. And then, you know, in a week, I'll start jogging again and then look at my calendar for the next race. Uh, that feels very different than sort of a, a constant barrage of low level chronic stress. Exactly, exactly. And probably you're going to recover from a marathon way faster than your fellow marathon runner who's sitting down today to a breakfast of bacon. Oh, well, you don't, you, don't have to, you don't have to wait that long. 30 seconds after crossing the finish line, people had pepperoni pizza in their hands. Wow. I was like, boy, you... Uh... So what was the point of running when you're going to then eat pepperoni pizza? They may as well just stay at home and watch TV. Well, know? I think they, a lot of people feel like the point of running is so you can eat pepperoni pizza. Interesting. <laughs> it's like, uh, you know, Jim Fix, the guy, the guy who popularized running in the 70s, got everyone, got everyone jogging, dropped out of a heart attack, apparently. His, his reason for running was so he could eat whatever he wanted. Yeah, no, I've known people like that, too, and, and I, I'm not going to talk about it because it's too personal, but one of least met a very unfortunate and early demise from having that mindset. So it, it's it's a very sad situation, actually, when you think of all the human suffering and the cost to the family of of losing a, a beloved family member and so on. But it, it yeah, that's why people do it, some of them. And that's why we're here today trying to reach out to those people and get them some good information. Right. So qu- quickly, what, what are our takeaways? What should people who, you know, who are interested in the science but not scientists, like people who just want to say, like, okay, Tell me the the bottom line of what I should do if I want to live a long, healthy life. What you want to do is eat a whole food plant-based diet, get a moderate amount of physical activity more if you enjoy it, you know, and, and just lead a lifestyle that's full of purpose and meaning for you, whatever that is. For some people, that's going to be a, a very social lifestyle. For other people, it's going to be more you know, sitting at a computer and studying something that fascinates them or writing novels or, or painting pictures or, or whatever it is for you. I mean, you have to define your own purpose in life. But really, you know, I, I think that's a large part of what is going to help you stay on track because when you have that purpose, it's going to help you make good decisions in terms of what to eat and get physical activity and get enough sleep and avoiding environmental toxins you know, obviously when you're out there running, you don't want to be running next to a freeway and breathing all those fumes. So, you know, it's pretty much just the common sense stuff, really. I think it always boils down to the common sense stuff. (laughs) There's no magic bullet. There's not one thing you can do that's going to work. Like, you know, don't think that just by eating a lot of sweet potatoes and nothing else matters. It doesn't work that way. It's the whole pattern of your diet and the whole pattern of your life.
All right. Well, Janice, thank you so much for all of your wisdom. For people who have heard all this and are hungry for more from you, where can they go? Well, first thing, check out my site, which is perfectformuladiet.com. My book, The Perfect Formula Diet, is available on Amazon, both as a print book and an e-book. Or please feel free to look me up on Facebook and send me your friend request. I'd love to be in touch with you that way. All right. And we had talked earlier about your uh, is your existing website is going to get a makeover or are you going to have a new one? I'm going to have a new one. I probably won't be able to get to it for several months. But if you check out perfectformuladiet.com, I'll announce the website there as well as on Facebook. And, and I'm sure there will be other people who let you know about it as well. So, you know, uh, hopefully it'll be coming soon. I can't wait. Awesome. And just to uh, to whet my appetite as well as other people's, when I have you back again, what, what are you what are, what are you going to talk about? What's your latest? We've done uh, we've done all sorts of things. We've done recently longevity. What's what's the next thing you're uh, becoming an, a uh, an expert on? Well, one thing I'm realizing more than ever, Howard, is that people don't really understand how their bodies work on a very fundamental level probably most people know more about how their cars work than how their bodies work. So I'm focusing more on teaching people about the basics of how their bodies work, starting at a cellular level and building up from that, because there's so many dangerous misunderstandings people have about their body. And there's so many just great branches of science that are springing up new. For example, there's a science called glycobiology, where we're looking at the roles of carbohydrate in the body. And that goes far beyond using carbohydrates as fuel. Actually, it turns out carbohydrates are an integral part of cell surfaces and of how all cells function. And we're not looking at simple sugars here for the most part, but kind of long, complex carbohydrate molecules. And it's a very misunderstood and underappreciated branch of how our bodies work. So I think the more people understand about how their bodies work and get in touch with that, the better they're going to be able to make good health decisions. So I'm definitely going in that direction and will be doing more work there. Well, that sounds exciting, especially because I think that probably a lot of medical professionals don't understand how our bodies work. And that, you know, if you, if you talk to someone, let's say on a, you know, the cellular level about type two diabetes, a lot of doctors don't have your understanding, or they don't have the biochemical understanding of like why the you know the ketogenic or the low carb diet, which brings down your blood sugar and you know does a whole bunch of apparently useful things with biomarkers, is actually not a solution, right? That uh, I don't know what what they study in med school, but it's not the stuff you're teaching us. Exactly. And they're really looking at biomarkers or risk factors rather than the actual disease. And one thing you read about if you follow medical journals or e-newsletters and so on is that people are very focused on coming up with better and better formulas that predict, for example, the risk that a person will have a heart attack. Well, what good is that formula? It doesn't tell you if you're going to have a heart attack, and it also doesn't tell you what you should do to prevent it. And that's, in my mind, what people should be focusing on rather than saying, 
oh, you have a 10% risk over the next 10 years or you have a 12% risk over the next 10 years. Really, that difference is insignificant. And rather than spending millions of dollars trying to resolve that formula, we really should be working on, like you said, exactly the big picture of how can we get people healthier and focus on health outcomes and people's quality of life. Right. So, so you you're going to be educating the the consumer, and hopefully, someone will be on a dual track educating uh, physicians and physicians to be, so that we can we can all start speaking the same language. Yeah, that would be great. I, I think physicians are very overwhelmed trying to keep up with their field. You know, no matter what their specialty is, there's probably hundreds of articles that come out every day that technically they should be reading and reviewing, and they don't have time and Obviously, there's pharmaceutical reps lined up at their door and so on. So they're kind of overwhelmed with the daily details. And it would be great to help them find a space to step back and look at the big picture. So maybe that can inform their practice a little more. Yeah. The cynic in me just wondered if all of that busyness is actually serving the purpose of keeping them from discovering the fundamentals, you know, in in the same way that I never learned how to balance a checkbook or, um, you know, negotiate a raise or navigate a conflict with a loved one at school. But I spent a lot of time learning, you know, trigonometry and calculus. Exactly, exactly. People are learning what's in the curriculum, and it's probably been in the curriculum for decades. And, you know, we're just trying to change the paradigm. I see that very strongly that we're trying to change the paradigm of how people think about their bodies and health and how they relate to medicine and lifestyle and so on. And we can bring all, all the healthcare professionals along in that, not just physicians. But, you know, change in paradigm doesn't happen overnight, but I think we're bringing it along there. Right. Although I think that I think it's really important for people, for lay people, for consumers, citizens to realize that the medical profession is the lagging edge. It's not the leading edge. Exactly. Exactly. There's just so many research articles out there and many are good and advance our knowledge, but there's probably a much greater number that do absolutely nothing that should never have been done or are even seriously misleading. And we really need to you know, concentrate on just raising the bar on everything and getting people going in a new direction. We can turn it around. You know, we can also save the healthcare system. You know, Medicare, you keep hearing, oh, Medicare is running out of money. And oh, well, you know, if we change the paradigm, it's not going to be running out of money anymore. So there's just so much to be done. And it's very exciting to be working in this field right now. All right. Well, so let's uh, let's stop talking to each other and go do it and uh, fix the world. And everyone who's listening, you you got your marching orders too to uh, to live your your longest best life. And uh, again, Doctor Janice Stanger, thank you so much for all you do and for taking the time today. Well, I'm delighted to have talked with you. All right. Take care. Bye. So whenever I finish an interview like that, I just have the urge to share it with so many people. This information is so powerful, such common sense, and so much heart and passion coming from Dr. Stanger that I really am so happy that she keeps agreeing to come back on the podcast and so happy that she keeps doing the work she does out into the world. 
So it'd be great if you could share this with other people. You can also share it, you know, on social media. You can uh, write that iTunes review that you've been meaning to write for how many months now and you haven't quite done it. It only takes a couple of minutes, quite painless. And if you don't know how, just go to plantyourself.com slash review. And I got a little video walkthrough that shows you just how easy it is. So we're starting to uh, collect our next cohort for the WellStart Health slash Big Change program. If you'd like to find out more information about that, you can still go to bigchangeprogram.com. We haven't uh, completed the redirect yet. And just click to sign up for the test drive. That way you will automatically be put on the notification list for when the cohort is up and running. So there are a couple of studies that Dr. Stanger mentioned, and I have links to them in the show notes, which you can find at plantyourself.com slash 274. If you're new to the show, you can catch up on 273 archived episodes over at plantyourself.com, where you can also, in the top right, sign up for the Big Change Bulldog, my newsletter that goes out every so often. So one of my most popular interviews of this year was with Bethany Steck Janicek, and I'm pleased to announce that thanks to Kelly Machia, we now have a transcript of that interview, which you can read and or download at plantyourself.com slash 263. In running news, I'm holding steady with pretty much uh, six milers in the mornings. This past weekend, I took a break from the running and actually worked much harder doing a lot of heavy lifting in the garden, carting lots of wood chips into some new beds that we... Uh, plowed and tilled to increase our capacity to uh, grow our own calories in, in our backyard. And thanks to a bumper crop of collards and parsley, we're getting our green smoothies from the garden rather than from Costco these days. All right, it's gratitude time. Thank you, Will Ridenauer, for allowing me to use your beautiful song, Sabali Dawn, Dance of Peace, as the theme music for this show. Check out Will's music at his website, willridenauer.com. And, of course, thanks to all of you Plant Yourself podcast patrons. Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Dixon, Brittany Porter, Dominic Mary, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Goodham, Amanda Hadley, Mary Jean Wheeler, Alan Kelly, Melissa Copper, Rachel Barnes, Christine Nielsen, Tina Sharp, Dean Ahern, Jennifer Lenovsky, David Bizek, The Mysterious, Michelle Axel, Elizabeth Feather, Victoria Dolan, Ovali, Estrella, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Andrews, Josina, Julian, Roland, Stu, Dolan, Sarah Durkers, Martha Sarkis, Kelly Cameron, Wayne Pedersen, Leanne Peterson, Janet Selby, Claire Adams, Sam Franzek, Jeanette Benham, Gila, Lissera, David Dottie, Hubler, Cyber, Dorona, Visa, Gio, and Carolyn, Dunton, Toddy, Judy, Friesen, Ruth, Ann Funderburg, Misha Rose, Michael Warbeck, Deacon, Lisa, Mysterious, Tracy, Z, Alicia, Lemus, Rebecca Hughes, Valen, and Rise of Cinnamon, Nick Harper, Stephanie, Holmes, Martha Bergner, Nicole Ramsey, Susan Allen, Molly Levine, the Inscrutable Harry R. Susan Laverty, The Band of Eden, Craig Kovic, Adam Scharf, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Ashley Corcoran, Kelly Machia, Deanne Norton, Bonnie Lynch, Plant, Happy Oregon, Oregon, Sabine Kurtzels, Sabina Kurtzels, I've been saying it wrong all this time, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Copel, Cheryl Rutledge, Julian Watkins, Breed O'Connell, Brian Sheridan, Shannon Hirschman, Craig, Kate Rolls, Linda Ayat, Julie Lang, Holm, Hedegaard, Isa Tuzin, Wakani, Hainline, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis, Aviva L. Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jensen, Sherry Orlikoski, Plant Power for Health, Karen Smith, Scott Morani, Karen and Joe Crabdy, Tanya Lewis, Kirby Burton, Teresa Carell, Kevin McCauley, Elizabeth Rothschild, Kelly Baker, Miracle Ann, Jesse Carroll, Dwyer, Chetty Hazelton, Valerie Peltier, Peter W. Evans. Colleen Harrison, Justine Divot, Joshua Sommermeyer, and Dennis Bird for your very generous support of the podcast. That's it for this week. As always, be well, my friends.